Hello, everybody, and welcome back to We've Got Mail! <laughs> the podcast where we read your emails. My name is William Bibiani. I am a film critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. You are Gutarg the Mighty, evidently. <laughs> Galgamore the Destroyer. My name is Whitney Seibold. Sometimes people call me Rockmeister McCool. Do I need a metal voice as well? No, you're fine. All right. <laughs> anyway, this is the podcast in which you control the conversation. You email us, letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. Uh, and people email us with uh, questions about our podcasts, about movies we reviewed, about trends in the media, film history. You want recommendations for various movies. Anything you want. The floor is yours. We're open books as much as we possibly can be. Uh, you know, just don't ask for a social security number and we're, you know, everything else is fair game. I've signed so many NDAs. Don't ask about those. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's it. So let's just get started. Whitney, who are we? Uh, who are we talking to uh, today? Uh, you, you said emails. That made me a little upset. I was hoping we'd l- just like rip open sacks of letters, like actual physical letters. There you go, thousands Wouldn- of letters, all made out to Santa Claus. W- wouldn't that be keen? Uh, here's a letter from Lady Knight the Brave. Ooh. Lady Knight the Brave uh, hasn't written to, for, to us in a little while. Yeah, but, uh, we missed you, Lady Knight the Brave. Uh, hello, Bibbs and Whitney. It's been a while since I've written. Indeed, it has. Uh, like I think, like I think, I haven't written since the B Movies podcast. Ooh. But I've been keeping up with the show, although I'm a bit behind. And I, I think, and suddenly you have new nicknames that I don't remember as I'm typing. So, oh well. <laughs> but I love to hear your nuanced takes on capital S stuff. <laughs> Also, I recently started doing video essays on YouTube, and oh, it's given awesome. me a taste of what you two probably deal with uh, on the regular as film critics, having your every opinion put under a microscope when art is so subjective. I admire your patience. It's a skill you develop kind of quickly. I mean, uh, you kind of have yeah. to. Like, once people actually start reading your stuff mm. or interacting with you on Twitter, we're talking about sub- we're talking about some objective realities. This movie came out so-and-so. Mm. It's part of this whatever, but... When it comes to subjectivity, everyone's got their personality wrapped up in the stuff that they like or don't like, and it's hard not to eventually get into a heated conversation. Yeah, where people are taking things personally right out of the gate. Yeah, like, it's it's fine that I don't I, like Space Jam. I, it's fine I, that I don't like Space I Jam. I hate Space Jam. How dare you? How dare I hate a corporate piece of trash? Like, you say it's art. Like, it's okay not to like it. Anyway, what do we... Well, I wouldn't call it art. Um, it's technically art. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not good art, but it's technically uh, perhaps. Okay, um, and I'm very, very late to the party, but I thought it might be fun to do a 10 best films of the decade list. Hey, cool. Uh, some of these might be my personal favorites as I worked, uh, and I figured I would pick one for every year, just so as not to be super weighted toward the last five years or something. Makes sense. My metric is mostly how much these films stuck in my memory in an emotional or visceral way. Uh, 2010, okay. How to Train Your Dragon. Oh, that's a good movie. Uh, I love animated films, and it's hard to quantify how much the first How to Train Your Dragon film kicks ass. <laughs> I would argue the second two films are both competent, but maybe not as memorable as the first one, which had such incredible sequences, like the big flying sequence or the scene where Hiccup pets Toothless for the first time. Uh-huh. This movie made me laugh and cry, and also the score to it by John Powell is pure excellence. Uh, that's a lovely film. I actually prefer the second one. I think it like it, it hits more emotional beats yeah, more powerfully, yeah. but the first two are really fantastic. Yeah. They're really good animated films. And uh, Hiccup loses his foot at the end of the first movie, so mm-hmm. is a disabled main character. Yep. Uh, the Craig Ferguson character is gay, question mark. Yeah. Uh, there, there was a line in How to Train Your Dragon 2 like, and that's why I never married. Well, that and one other reason. And that the reason was supposed to be that he's gay. Yeah. Uh, and I think they made that a... L- 
Maybe a little more explicit in part three, but I don't recall. I don't, I don't recall at all. But he never like had a husband or anything. No, no, no. no, no, so, no yeah. I, don't, I don't think so. Uh, 2011, Take Shelter. I still haven't uh, seen So this. I discovered writer-director Jeff Nichols from the movie from this movie, and since this film, has been, uh, he's made Loving and Midnight Special, which are bigger movies, but Take Shelter is the one that sticks with me. I deal with a lot of anxiety in my life, like... The diagnosed kind on top of the world just being a general trash on top of the world just being a general trash fire. And there's something about the apocalyptic nature of this movie and the anxiety portrayed by Michael Shannon that is so visceral and real to me. On top of that, the ending is so mysterious and open ended. It really just gives it's really just a good movie that hit me where I live. Take Shelters yeah. ended up on a lot of the list that people have sent us to the extent that I feel really bad that I haven't seen. Yeah, it. I still haven't watched it either. I've seen yeah. Jeff Nichols' other movies though. Yeah. Uh, 2012, Seeking a Friend for the End of the World. Oh, I also haven't seen this. Interesting. I still need to see Hustlers, which is also by writer-director Lorreen Scafaria. I'm glad people are paying attention to her work now, but her directorial debut back in 2012 really threw me for a loop when I saw it in theaters at the time. The movie is hilarious, bleak, and heartfelt by turns. On the surface, it's mostly a wacky road trip movie with the odd couple of Steve Carell and Kara Knightley. And as much as I love this movie, I do find the age gap to be a bit problematic. <laughs> but the ending to the film got me in all my feelings and has definitely influenced me as a storyteller. Wow. Uh, yeah, it's called Seeking a Friend for the End of the World. The world is ending. There's there's no salve to that. Yeah, just the just, world is coming to an end. What do you do? To yeah. an end, and some people are trying to so reach how, out. How do you react? One to that? less human connection. Yeah. 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 Uh, 2013 Gravity. Uh, this movie. Well, it was 2012 wasn't it? No. Well, maybe 2013 where she lives. I think it's 2013. How is it? I thought so. No, no, maybe so. Uh, this movie is just so beautiful. Sandra Bullock was so incredible. Stephen Price's score, which sort of worked both as music and as a replacement for sound effects in certain sequences, was amazing. I just remember taking a friend of mine to see it in theaters. I had already seen it once, but I wanted to show it to my friend, and she didn't make a sound for the entire runtime. Just Then, just as the credits rolled, she looked at me and just said, Whoa, gravity. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, gravity. It's one of those movies that is an experience, and I will forever love it for that. What was the movie that was, uh, like, the tagline was 100% pure adrenaline? Was it Point Break? Point Break, yeah. I feel like gravity deserves it. I feel like 100% pure <laughs> adrenaline is a tagline we should get to ascribe mm. to very specific films. Mm. It'd be, like, Gravity and, like, Fury Road. Mm. And point break, and that's it. There need to be. There also need to be more that that have um, to a town with no future comes a man with a past. Yeah, that that was there's that, a lot of those. That, there's there's I've seen that's at least three movies. I'm pretty sure. Uh, 2014, Lilting. I don't recall this one. Lilting. I don't know Lilting. I looked at all the movies in 2014, and there's some genre stuff I really liked, such as Captain America, The Winter Soldier, or Edge of Tomorrow. But this is a movie I really remember punching me in the stomach. Since it's a lesser-known film, I'll briefly summarize it in case you haven't seen it. Ben Whishaw plays a man named Richard, whose partner Kai, played by Andrew Leung, recently died unexpectedly. Kai's mother, Jun, played by Ching Pei Pei, didn't know her son was gay, so Richard struggles to try and connect with Jun over their shared loss in spite of the language barrier since Jun speaks very little English, and all the while, while he tries to keep the true nature of his relationship with her son a secret. It's really a quiet film, oh, one that I moves very this. easily between the past and present to create a gentle but nuanced portrait of grief. Yeah, I remember when this Lilting. came out. I didn't see okay. it, but it got really good notices. Okay, wow, okay, I'll, I'll put that on my to-do list. But that sounds excellent. Yeah. Okay. Uh, also, I love Ben Whishaw, so yeah. there we go. Uh, 2015, Mad Max Fury Road. 
I think Mad Max Fury Road might be the perfect movie, question mark. Uh, I can find no fault in it, and watching it this day feels like being strapped to the front of one of those vehicles, much like Max does when he spends 20 minutes as a blood bank slash hood ornament. The movie is a high-octane thrill ride that kicks ass and takes names, and Charlie Theron as Furiosa is everything to me. I'm grateful to this movie for being at the forefront of a still-growing trend where women can be badass, but still complicated and emotional, and they can fight without being pretty or graceful. Any movie that lets a woman feral scream gets a million points from me for that alone. You know, there's certain... Um, as time goes on and the movies that filled the theaters start to fade into obscurity mm. and decades begin to be known for only so many films, some right. more than others, but over time it dilutes and now mm. people remember the 30s. You know, they remember like 20 movies from the 30s. Yeah, yeah. You know, and then there's way more that were brilliant. And if you know your film history, you know a lot more. But the average person can th- name of like maybe 20. Mm. Mad Max Fury Road is going to be one of those for the 2010s. Well, yeah. I mean, it, just, it, it, it was right away. Everybody, just, everybody lost yeah. their mind for that when it came out. Nobody's... I'm the only person who seems to have cooled on it at all. And, mm. you know, I'm the, I'm the freak in that Well, regard, you still like so. it. I still think it's fine. I just don't need to ever watch it again. I'm fine. Oh, fair enough. Uh, 2016 is Arrival. Uh, ah. I had to choose between this movie or Blade Runner 2049, and I chose this movie. <clears throat> Excuse me. Arrival is utterly original in its look at aliens and language and somehow feels very current when dealing with an international event and how bad humans are at getting along with one another, almost to the point of extinction. The non-linear way events are reframed as rad as hell, and the cynical nature really rewards multiple viewings. Also, Amy Adams and Jeremy Renner give me give me a lot of feelings. Uh, 2017, Logan. Okay. Remember what I said about loving a girl for feral screaming? Every time Daphne Keene's Laura <laughs> feral screamed, I think I ascended. I love this movie for a lot of reasons, but Keene is a lot of them. The other half are uh, Hugh Jackman and Patrick Stewart playing tired, aged versions of the heroes we've gotten to know so well since they graced screens back in 2000. I do wish more superhero stories ended. Yeah. And the end of Wolverine and Professor X's story here was so satisfying, I kind of never want to see another X-Men film, unless that X-Men film is about Laura and all our equally kick-ass and murderous mutant friends. I feel like the worst thing that happened to Logan was mm. releasing any X-Men films afterwards. Yeah, yeah. It just made it seem like less significant. And uh, Logan's fantastic. I got I have mm. no meaningfully harsh words to say about Logan. I think it's a really excellent motion picture. It made my best of the year list. Mm. Um, but for whatever reason, it's not occupying a lot of space in my brain. And I was thinking oh, okay. about that lately. Like, why is it that Logan, this sort of, you know undeniably excellently made motion picture mm. just isn't like part of like my head canon like you know the movies I think about and refer to mm. often and I realized it's because there were other X-Men movies and that really diluted the whole reason for that movie yeah. to exist well, when just, the franchise just continued. It, it's difficult to take Logan at face value when we know constantly how these big companies are just going to keep on pushing these franchises forward ad infinitum there was a rumor just the other day about uh, who was going to play wolverine in like when he joins the avengers team that's only a matter of time it's it's a matter of time before it happens and no henry cavill is not playing wolverine that was just a rumor but uh that we're continuing to think of the character in that way in sort of how how much further can we push logan what new logan stories can we tell kind of stands as a testament to how much Logan failed in closing the book on that character. I don't think, I don't think Logan failed. I think the studio failed Logan. I think the mm. movie did a great job. I think the studio failed it. I, think, I just meant in terms of like cultural traction. Well, perhaps. Mm. Um, I don't know. I, I, 
I feel like it's okay to put a franchise to bed once in a while, but whatever. <laughs> we don't need James Bond anymore. Well, I mean, I, that, that, I, that, that I object to having more James Bond mm. movies, but I also would be fine if we didn't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? And, and I think it's okay to... If, if you're going to keep making X-Men films, just no more Wolverine someone, in those X-Men someone films. Someone posted you know? a thing on Twitter, and we'll finish late tonight's email in a second, but someone posted a thing on Twitter, which was, uh, here are all of the major franchise movies coming out in 2021, next year. Mm-hmm. And it's a ridiculous number of movies. Yeah, it's there's like a new, 30 films it's a new Indiana yeah. Jones, and there's a new Marvel movie, and the new blah, 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 so, yeah, blah. Eight, huge eight list of films. Marvel films. Yeah, that's yeah, I'm sure all the studios are going to make a lot of money. Good for them. Uh, but the the... Like, the prompt was, you can only see five of these movies, and you'll never see any of the others. Mm-hmm. And everyone's like, oh, God, what a horrible Sophie's choice. And what I, re- quote, retreated it was, <laughs> swear your fealty to five, <laughs> five franchises! And I thought that was, like, ironic, mm-hmm. and people would be like, oh, wow, okay, yeah, we are kind of just making promises to see these movies in the future because out of brand loyalty, and mm-hmm. maybe we shouldn't be doing that, and instead people just responded to my quote retreat, I don't know, this is really hard, but mm-hmm. okay, Mission Impossible. No, 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 you're missing, okay, so maybe I was inarticulate. Well, I, I, <laughs> my response is, can I pick one and not see any of the others? Yeah. The only one I'm curious about is Avatar 2. And I know Cause, why, because James Cameron promises to be innovative. J- yeah, James Cameron has said in interviews that he won't make a film unless it's the biggest thing ever. Yeah. Which means he's going to be bloody ambitious, whether or not that's a good film. No, I don't, I don't I'm think curious I, to see what he's going to do. I don't think so. Avatar is a, is a well-told story. It's an impressive production. Yeah. It's an interesting cinematic achievement. And and it, it moved special effects into a realm I didn't think I would ever see. Yeah. And, and that's what he promises to do with Avatar 2. Yeah. It's the same thing underwater? Good God, that sounds ambitious. It really, I'm going to do that. I want to see that one. I also want... Listen, I I have Mm. no... After Avatar 1, Mm. I'm not particularly interested in the characters or what they're going to do next, but I'm sure the visual effects will be neat. I I don't care if it's Sully or Natiri or any of those characters. It doesn't matter. Whatever he's going to do, it's going to be neat. Moving on with the email. Uh, No, uh, 2018, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Yeah, I mean, this movie literally movie. invented a new style of animation. It helped. Uh, it's easy to heap praise on this movie, both for its humor. There's a joke with a bagel that always gets me, but also for the heart. Uh, the "What's Up, Danger" sequence is one of the best things to happen to us this decade, and the message that anybody can be Spider-Man, whether you're a girl or a mixed race kid from Brooklyn or a literal talking pig, was just great. I think uh, I think Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse has the best like soundtrack of like a non-musical. Mm. I think the soundtrack into the Spider-Verse is bloody fantastic because they're not just relying on well-known songs. They made new songs indispensable. <laughs> like what all of the songs mm-hmm. on that soundtrack are just yeah. on repeat in my head. And uh, 2019 was Jojo Rabbit. Uh, oh, there you go. Being Jewish has never been easy historically. It did get a bit harder in 2016 when Nazis decided it was cool and hip to walk down the street with tiki torches, chanting slogans like Jews will not replace us. I know some people don't like Jojo Rabbit, uh, either because they find its satire offensive or because they find the second and third acts to be manipulative, but I will never forget the scene where a young Jewish girl said, there are no weak Jews. We are descendants from those who wrestle angels and kill giants. I wanted to get up and punch the air. <laughs> Taika Waititi is Jewish, and uh, while films like Inglorious Bastards are often celebrated for their subversive takes on historical events, it feels different when the story is told by a Jewish person. It feels more honest, and more Holocaust media that I find even remotely good is usually coming from Jewish filmmakers. There are certain stories that are just better when they're told by somebody within the community involved, and whether it is for the subversive com- comedic elements, Waititi's take on Hitler is hilarious, or the more emotional moments in the film, Jojo Rabbit is just excellent from the 
first film to the last. I saw the movie with my mom, and I cried buckets and left the theater physically shaking. Ten out of ten, I would cry again. I fully support this, <laughs> and Jojo Rabbit is a film that I liked when I first saw it, and has only grown in my estimation ever since. Yeah, I, 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 the more I think about it, the more I can't really sort of put a finger onto any problems it has. No, it works. It's, it's yeah, just daring. It's difficult. Yeah. It's challenging. It, it's, it's really, very, it's really sweet, and I think yeah. it's really good for kids. Yeah, I mean, uh, slightly older kids, but like because uh, uh, I think kid, some of kids gonna go over junior high, but yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, no, I think I think it's gonna like you could show it in a classroom. Okay, yeah, I think so. Like it's an excellent motion picture. Mm. All right. Uh, so that's my list. All the best on your great podcast. I hope one day people will stop writing to you about Star Wars. <laughs> and I saw that somebody, and I say that as somebody who absolutely wrote you emails about Star you Wars. Sure uh, hope you're having a nice day, Lady Night. Well, uh, thank you for writing in, Lady thank Night. Thank you. We missed you. We were just yeah. talking about, like, when Lady Night the Brave hasn't written to us in so long, what happened? <laughs> did, we, did, we, mm. did, we, did we do something wrong? So I'm really, really glad. Thank you so much for emailing mm. us, and that's a great list. All right. Uh, here is a letter from Topher. Oh, hi, Topher. Topher. Uh, and this is my, my list of the 90s movies that ever 90'd. Okay, so in the Sorry. recent episode of The Big List... The Iron uh, List. I'm oh, sorry, The Iron List. We're going to call it The Big List. We're going to call it The Iron List. So in the recent episode of The Iron List, mm. uh, we did the movies that sort of defined the 90s. These are mm. the movies that you know, typified trends or made history or whatever. And just the movies that without which the nineties wouldn't have been the nineties. And Whitney and I had a little bit of overlap, but we mostly saw the decade in a slightly different way. Yeah, uh, this is Topher's take. Uh, context, I graduated college in 1989 and got married in 1990, so this was the height of my movie-going life. Also, I deliberately did not pick anything on your list, even though I love hackers. <laughs> <laughs> in no particular order. Pump up the volume. The Soul of Our Discontent. Do you see Pump Up the Volume? Um, actually, I've never seen Pump Up the Volume. Everyone keeps telling me it's great. I haven't either. So, yeah. No, okay. I can't comment on that, unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, the Scent of a Woman. Rage Against the Winter's Night. Hmm. As like a... The best films of the '90s are like the most '90s of the '90s. I mean, you that when it was it was heavily quoted. It yeah, was very true. popular at the time. It did. It I didn't did see it being uh, terribly influential, though. It was a good story about sort of disaffected youth mm-hmm. and you know, sort of coming to terms with maturity and mortality. Through, yeah. through a really good Al Pacino performance. Yeah, I always just saw it as more of an Al Pacino yeah. vehicle than anything, yeah. but fair enough. <laughs> You're going to miss my hoo-ha, my tangoing, my blind driving, my hoo-ha. You said that already. I say it a lot. Hoo-ha. <laughs> That's the critic. Um, uh, the Professional, introducing Natalie Portman. Uh, the Professional was a huge cult hit in my oh, yeah. college back in the day. Oh, yeah. When I was in it college, was, yeah. it was the one of the films everyone watched. Because it's, it's an expertly constructed motion picture. Mm-hmm. Um, it's hard to not see it as being very creepy, of course. But it is very well made. And Gary Oldman is giving a performance, like a villain performance for the ages. Yeah. yeah. Well, all, all, all the three leads. Gary Oldman. Uh, Jean Reno. Jean Reno and Natalie Portman. Everyone's good, good at it. Everyone's good at it. Just a weird film. Yeah. Uh, Johnny Mnemonic. <laughs> I'm a tech nerd and I totally jam on this. Yeah, Johnny Mnemonic. I remember when Johnny yeah, Mnemonic. Yeah, Johnny Mnemonic. Johnny Mnemonic is, uh, was it Phil K. Dick? Phil K. Dick story? Phil K. Dick story. Yeah, it's based on Phil K. Dick story about a guy, it's in the future and... The most valuable order- resource is information. Which is true. Mm. And so the whole thing is like, in, in order to preserve your information and deliver it to people safely, you download it into Johnny Mnemonic's brain and then he delivers it personally it's, and he'll yeah. fight off anyone who wants the information from his brain. And I remember very specifically when this movie came out, reading reviews about how ludicrous this was. Like, mm. wait a minute, you're just going to download it into Keanu Reeves' brain? For word about security, why don't you just email it? Mm. And I'm like, that's now, funny. Yeah, nowadays that's really funny that anyone mm. thought that was a thing. People were like, <laughs> giving. I mean, granted, it's a stupid film, but uh. like, 
that's not the stupid part. Oh. That's actually the part that makes more sense. <laughs> And, Once, uh, and then you get, I, like, Dolph Lundgren as an assassin homeless then, preacher. Henry Rollins as a, a super guru hacker priest character yeah. with a psychic dolphin in a tank. That's good That's, that's a weird-ass movie, man. Uh, I have the novelization of Johnny Mnemonic, although I haven't read it yet. I read passages of it at a friend's wedding, though. Mm. I officiated their wedding, and I read from the Holy Scriptures, which is the novelization of Johnny Mnemonic. Ah. It was a fun night. Uh, Gattaca. Hey, that's a good Gattaca, pick. Gattaca. Did you know this movie actually spawned legislation to prevent genetic discrimination? Yes, it did. I didn't know that. That's funny. Yeah. You know, uh, Gattaca's a great sci-fi movie about uh, a near future where we've cracked the human genome and we can tell before someone's born all of the traits they're going to have and people start genetically altering their gonna, children yeah. to be more perfect in the womb and how people who do not have gen- genetic alteration become second or third class citizens and one mm-hmm. guy has to pretend. It's really good. It's really good. It's really smartly yeah. made, yeah. So I'm the same writer is the Truman Show he directed. And I, I don't think there's like any kind of law against it, but it's like, yeah, this big taboo. It's like racism. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the Boondock Saints. Yeah, uh, I see that. The yeah. comment is pure 90s cult. Yeah, it's uh, the thing with the Boondock watch, Saints. Watch, watch Overnight as well, the documentary film mm. about the makers of the Boondock I've, Saints. I've never it's really seen that. fascinating. What's the name of the director again? Is, uh, oh, uh, what is his name? Not, you looked that up for a second. Not, not Bruce Van Boondock Bader, Saints um, is the kind, The reason I didn't like the Boondock Saints is not because it's that bad, and it's not. It's fine. Mm. Uh, it's because it felt like it was prepackaged as a cult movie. Yeah, Troy Duffy was his name. Troy yeah. Duffy, yeah. It's about uh, two. Uh, Irish American guys who decide to become vigilantes, and it's all over the top and crazy. And it's, Willem it's Dafoe is a superhero is, film, and Billy Connolly's in it. Yeah, and, Willem Dafoe is giving an overtop and crazy. Willem Dafoe is the best part of the movie. Yeah, um, but like it felt like I was being told I was going to be part of this cult, and I didn't actually choose to join. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's how it felt to me. It, it felt way too ain't it cool news to me. Like yeah. it was pandering to a very specific audience of like nineties brands. Exactly. Dogs. Like we want we want yeah. this exact new generation of film critics to support this. That's mm. how it, it just felt calculated. I, and uh, it wasn't because it turns out Troy Duffy is that guy. Yeah. But yeah, the, that's, how, the, that's how it felt. The, the documentary you know, overnight is, is really fascinating because it sort of delves into his character, what the phenomenon actually was, how good the film actually is, which it actually isn't. Um, like I watched it a couple times because mm-hmm. it was part of that sort of cult thing. Yeah, but it's like it's not a great movie. No. It's it's a pretty good movie. It's, it's actually, stylish and energetic. It's actually a but, really uh, good pick for a film that sort of like typified the nineties. Like yeah, this is what was considered cool. cool. This was nineties. Yeah, cool. that's a good point. Um, Rushmore. Yeah, nineties uh, angsty angst. Also quirky quirk. Quirky, yeah. Yeah, it's angsty angst and quirky quirk independent <laughs> cinema. I think that's totally totally fair. Snoop Snoop quirky quirk. Uh, Oh, and this was one that I kind of regret not putting on my list. Ever after, oh, that's the a dawning good one. of the feminist fairy tales. Yeah, that's, that's a really good that, pick. That, we we left off the whole uh, the whole corner of like the Lilith Fair style. Yeah, I regret that. And and uh, the the mummers dance and all that like Irish American stuff that started to creep in around. We like, also really didn't get 90s. into queer cinema. Which we did, I yeah, we didn't I, get into I, queer I, cinema. I, yeah, we did, we should have, but we only had so many picks. Yeah. Um, ever after, first off, ever after. Still pretty good. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's aged better than some of its other films in its generation. But yeah, it's Cinderella, but yeah. what if it was a little bit more cool? And <laughs> and, 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 yeah. looks, and looks like a little affair. Yeah. You, know, you visited Hot Topic. and But it's fine. It doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't feel Richard like... Richard O'Brien's em- in it, yeah. It doesn't feel like empty style. 
It's no. not. It's it's like we're going to take this idea. We're going to modernize Cinderella, but we are also going to tell a real story here. Mm. We're going to have some fun. We're going to have some romance. It's going to feel. You're going to. We're going to get all the mm. unironic feels. Yeah. And that's one of the things that ever. It does. It's not an ironic film from, a, but it's from a very ironic era, and I think it's one of the reasons why it's aged right. very well. Um, gross point blank. Nothing okay. says '90s better than Assassins Unionizing, uh, and also mm. uh, kitsch '80s soundtracks. Yeah. Yeah, that was a good soundtrack. I, I think between that film and The Wedding Singer, that mm-hmm. really kind of brought to my attention that 80s nostalgia was was going to be a thing. I think the I think The Wedding Singer cemented. Wasn't mm-hmm. The Wedding Singer like 2000 though? No, Wedding Singer was like 96 or ni- or no, 97. It was ni- 96, 97, 98. In there. It was, it was the 98. 90, 98. Oh, All right. All right, The Wedding Singer probably should have been on my list. Then. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, between that and Gross Point Blank, I realize it's, yeah. it's like he go, he's going to his prom, he's an aging Gen Xer. It's like, okay, they're old enough now that we can look back at high school in the 1980s. Yeah. And we're going to have Cusack a lot was of in those teen movies in the 1980s. So yeah, so it's it fitting, fitting for, yeah. yeah. But so yeah, I, I remember he went to his prom and they're playing We Care A Lot by Faith No More. It's like, no prom would play We Care A Lot by Faith No More. <laughs> it's a little too that's, cool. that's way left of the dial. And uh, and my number one best 90s movie is The 13th Floor. <laughs> I've never seen The 13th Floor. <laughs> oh, gosh. It was overshadowed by The Matrix, but it is a superior story in film. It's a, a virtual reality thing. I think if I could go back uh-huh. to my Iron List episode and change one thing, mm-hmm. I would take off Demolition Man, which I still think was an interesting choice, and mm-hmm. I like it, it being on there, but I would take off Demolition Man, and I would put in Airborne. Airborne, the skating movie? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Airborne is 90s to the extreme, and it's about a surfer bro who moves to the Midwest where there are no waves, man. He has to put his surfboard on his bed at night and just oh, pretend. Yeah, it sucks so much. But, like, everyone, nobody likes me because I'm all, like, philosophical and I'm into surfing because I'm from California, yo. Dude. Dude. And, uh, but it's okay because I finally got my chill rollerblades and I'm gonna totally crush the devil's backbone in, like, this epic, <laughs> like, the last, there's this huge The, the, the downhill roller, race is really amazing. There's this yeah. huge downhill rollerblading race at the end of Airborne, which is, like, 20 minutes long. It fucking kills. Like, it's, it's great. It's more like 10, but yeah. It, yeah, but it, it feels, feels long, really yeah. epic. And, like, I saw this on a big screen. Like, they had a revival screening of it, like, 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. And that thing fucking kills on the big screen. That ending's <laughs> great. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, it's just, it's, the attitude is so very specifically, mm-hmm. I got my personality from the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I'm gonna yeah. treat it like I'm I'm wise and hip now, mm. but I'm in the Midwest and everyone sees through my bullshit. <laughs> the wisdom of the Ninja Turtles. It's so fucking. It's it's yeah. fun. I like it a lot. But it's, mm. you could not make that movie yeah. at any other time. Yeah, uh, Topher also says a couple on- honorable mentions: The Jackal, the remake of The Day of the Jackal. Interesting choice. Yeah, um, with uh, R- Richard Gere and Bruce Willis, and yeah. uh, Jack Black as a gunrunner who gets killed by Bruce Willis, and, and Steven Spinella as a uh, who gets to. Kiss Bruce Willis on the mouth in that movie. I don't remember that at all. You don't remember Steven Spinell in that no. movie? He's poor victim that I believe Bruce, you. Bruce, yeah, Bruce Willis like seduces him at a club and then mm. says, "Oh, call me, call me when you're in town again," and calls him up. But then he's he's out of character and he's an assassin. He just kills Steven right. Spinell. It's like this tragic thing. Uh, yeah. A strictly ballroom. Oh yeah, that's and a good pick. the Fifth Element. Both <clears throat> those are good picks. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Uh, strictly ballroom. Oh, 
Well, I love that movie so much. It does not hold up. Oh, screw you! It does not hold up. No, I, I watched it like three years after the first time I saw it. It's like, oh, this is. Yeah, I watched I it. Like, I, I got it all the first time. You well, know, yeah, I, I mean, it's it's time. it's a lot of it is just kind of yeah. style, and it's. I don't know. I feel like it's got the same sign of ultra sincerity as a step mm. up movie, and I really just mm. dig it. I I think since Strictly Ballroom is. It's Baz very specifically best movie. Probably, but like I still, I but I I do I love it. I okay. unironically love Strictly Ballroom. I think it's an unapologetic delight. Okay, I think somebody needs to match Buzz Lerman with something that like more accurately re- like de- represents his sensibilities. You know, what I would love to see. Hmm. Baz Luhrmann directing a movie about Dazzler. <laughs> that, that was my idea. <laughs> yeah. Oh, was it your idea? Yeah, yeah. Okay, I, I wonder where I got that idea. Yeah, yeah. that's the, where uh, we, we give a superhero film, like a big MCU film to Baz Luhrmann. He can do whatever he wants, and he chooses Dazzler, who can turn disco into the light. Yeah. <laughs> that's her superpower. <laughs> And and if if you look up what she looked like, she used to wear like this all white seventies jumpsuit with flare bell bottom pants. Yeah, and depending and, on who drew it, maybe mm. it had glitter spangles. Yeah, yeah, it had like, it had spangles on it. And uh, in the original costume, she had roller skates as well, and uh. they had like mirror ball mirrors on the roller skates. In, and she um, could turn disco into light. In uh, X Men Apocalypse, I think there was like a guy that got cut from the film where mm. they like went to a record store and they had a Dazzler album, and mm. I think Dazzler on the cover was Taylor Swift. Oh, that's kind of fun. Which is fun, actually. Yeah. I would, I would, honestly, Taylor Swift is not the worst actor. Like, you could actually just cast her <laughs> as Dazzler, and I'd be like, okay, if she does original music about being a superhero, that's going to be the best album of all time. That's gonna, <laughs> seriously, that's going to sell a billion copies. Well, the problem is, here, here's a weird thing I've never thought I'd say. Ta- Taylor Swift is too old now. Uh, <laughs> she's the ripe old age of 24, however old she is now. Um, I imagine how she is. Uh, but I think you can do it. You have to get somebody like Billie Eilish now, who's who's a teenager. Well, really I don't know if she can right act, now. though. Well, it's, she's still cool, though. She I mean, is cool. Yeah. I have a lot of respect for Billie Eilish, but I just don't know if she can act. All right. Uh, here's a letter from Cody. Hello, Cody. Hi, Cody. Uh, hello, Mr. Beast and Mr. McCool. I hope that both of you are doing wonderful. Over the last several years, we have had a new Star Trek trilogy of films mm-hmm. and a new Star Wars trilogy of films. It's a Star Wars letter. That's fine. That's, and a Star Trek letter. Uh, and a Star Trek letter. That so makes I, pre- it okay. I present these two trilogies in a buy or sell question. Mm. Do you buy the Star Trek trilogy? of Star Trek Into Darkness and Beyond, or do you buy the Star Wars trilogy, The Force Awakens, The Last Jedi, and The Rise of Skywalker? I look forward to your answer, and I think thank you, too, for the hours of entertainment that you have provided me. Okay, uh, uh, so... Uh, you mean, like, buy on home video, or...? I think it's just you have to pick one or the other. Okay. I think uh, you could say you buy it on home video, mm. or you could just say, you know, which, which, which is okay, the winner. You, Let's you, just say, the new Star Trek You're a mega company, and somehow you own these six films. And you get to you get to sell one of them and buy one of them. Sure. Yeah. All right. So we got the new Star Trek trilogy. We're going to discount all the TV shows, mm. and we got the new Star Wars trilogy, and we're going to discount the ancillary stuff like mm. Rogue One or Solo. So it's just the new quote unquote Skywalker saga. Mm. Uh, that is a good question because I think first off. They're both J.J. Abrams joints. Yeah. Uh, but There's four J.J. Abrams films in those six But ones. they're both really mixed bags. Uh-huh. Um, so let's just go one at a time. Star Trek, 2009. J.J. Um, Abrams had the task of rebooting the franchise by recasting truly iconic characters with a truly iconic cast. And the fact that he got away with it, let alone made an entertaining movie, is stunning. Mm. Uh, I think it is maybe not a great movie, but I do think it is a great example of how to do a reboot. 
Okay. Because I think you, you're respecting the past. You're building, like, potential for new stories. You're introducing new cast members and, and making them fill the characters. The characters are pretty spot on. Um, the plot's not great, but it's as far as, like, here's a new crew of the Enterprise. Here's your first adventure stories. I would say it's at least better than Generations. That's fair. Yeah, I think it's uh, I think it's a solid start. It's 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 a good sci-fi action spectacular whether or not it's a good Star Trek movie. Yeah. Um, Star Trek Into Darkness fails on both of those fronts. Yeah. It's not good Star Trek nor is it a good adventure film. No, I I there's every time I revisit Star Trek Into Darkness and I've seen mm. it like three or four times. The first time I was just pissed. Because <laughs> the, the just, whole con thing. The con thing. It's so insulting that they tried to do it in the first place, and like, and it was frustrating because as soon as they were casting that role, people were like, "Oh, he's going to be con," mm. and they're like, "No, no, no, he's not going to be con." Well, what, and they what just, was his name? It was like Anderson, uh, John Harrison, John Harrison, John Harrison. No, he's John Harrison. No, he's not. We all know he's con. You, you're doing con, and they're like, "No, no, no, we swear we're not doing con." And then halfway through the movie, my name is con. I'm like, "Fuck you!" Seriously, uh-huh. come on. Because we guessed too early, and instead of like, "Oh, okay, this is not as clever as we thought it was," mm-hmm. because the entire movie hinges on this being yeah, a mid movie reveal. It, 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 it means that they over that they underestimated the audience, and they were screwed from page one mm-hmm. because half that movie is a waste of time. Yeah, yeah. It's, Half the movie is a fucking waste of time, and and it's such an underwhelming reveal yeah. that making him sort of the the vengeanceful villain, him and Peter Weller, yeah, uh, are just it carries no weight at that point, yeah. and you're just sort of waiting for things to play out. There's the, no big twist or surprise or anything even meaningful. And even when they do big meaningful things like kill off Captain Kirk in that mm-hmm. movie. Of course, they bring him right back to life, so it's not, so not it a spoiler nothing. to say. Yeah, at least at least Spock they, stayed dead for a couple of years. They 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 staged that in such a way that it, it mirrored Star Trek II: The Wrath of Khan so closely mm-hmm. that it felt really corny, well, rather it, than meaningful or emotional. Well, it also reminded you of just how much stronger Wrath of Khan was mm. because okay, Spock died. Spock stayed dead for years, and bringing Spock back at cost something. Like, Kirk lost yeah. his son to do that. Well, also, so it had consequence. By, Even the resurrection had consequence. Bringing back Kirk meant nothing. Mm. It was just easy. Yeah. And that sucks. The only thing in Into Darkness where I'm watching... Every, every time I watch it, I'm just like, this was a neat idea. I wish you had done this. <laughs> Is there's that brief bit around the second to third act changeover where Kirk and Khan have to team up. No, there you go. Where it's like, you know what? And technically, if you want to go with it, Khan's whole, like, terrorist acts at the beginning notwithstanding, Khan started out as the aggrieved party. Right. Because Peter Weller's character thought him out, used him to make all these horrible war plans, and he was holding Khan's entire, like, species of Mm. uh, genetically engineered Superman hostage. So Khan Khan is, at the very least, you know, potentially on his way to a redemption arc, maybe. Mm. So there's a moment where it's like, okay, wouldn't have been cool if Kirk died and Khan became captain of the Enterprise. <laughs> there you go. For a yeah. second, I'm like, maybe they'll do something really interesting. In the following and movie, Kirk is just out and we have Captain Khan. Maybe. Yeah, there could have been consequences for all this and instead they cured death. <laughs> so, no. It's stupid and it sucks and it doesn't work. And I do not like that movie. Beyond, here's what I like about Beyond. Mm. It's one, I, For my money, the best Star Trek movies are the Star Trek movies in which every single member of the cast gets something interesting to do. Oh, and that's that's exactly what uh, Simon Pegg, the screenwriter, mm-hmm. wanted to do with Star Trek no, Beyond. 100%. So, like, again, my favorite two Star Trek movies mm. are 
uh, Voyage Home, which everyone gets fun stuff to do, mm. and Undiscovered Country, in which everyone gets fun stuff to do. Beyond, everyone gets fun stuff to do. They're putting interesting pairings, like you'd never like picture mm. like the whole movie centered around like Uhuru, uh, uh, Uhura and uh, Sulu, like just paired up together. That's just an interesting grouping, <laughs> and that's really cool. And uh, I liked Scotty and uh, so, oh, I forgot the character's name, Sophia Botella. Oh, uh, you yeah. can always remember her because uh, she was named after Jennifer Lawrence in Winter's Bone. So oh, was she her, really? Yeah, the, the, the original draft of the film, uh-huh. her character was named Jennifer Lawrence in Winter's Bone. So it's <laughs> totally a sign of that thing. So her character's name is Jayla. Oh, isn't that cute? That's how you can Jayla. remember that. Okay. Um, th- they're J- all fun. They're yeah. all fun. It just the the story doesn't hold much weight. Mm. Just Idris Elba is an okay villain, but it just he wants to destroy this one space station, and I I can honestly I'm pretty vague on why. And I've seen the movie uh, twice, yeah, well, and I don't even really remember very well. Uh, what I appreciated about Star Trek Beyond is that uh, it it was one of the only ones that made some sort of like palpable connection to previously established Star Trek lore. Mm-hmm. The weird thing was is the only lore they connected to was stuff from Enterprise. Oh yeah, the weird? St- stuff that people didn't really know in the pop consciousness. Like Deep Cut Trekkies, of course, knew that stuff. Mm-hmm. They could, you know, I could tell you about the Zindi War, mm-hmm. but yeah, they actually make a reference and dialogue to the Zindi War in Star Trek Beyond. Well, the other thing I didn't like about how they sort of were telling the story is so the first Star Trek was about getting the team together. Okay. Mm-hmm. Star Trek Into Darkness was before the team got to go on its big epic mission, they had to do this whole con thing. Mm. But now we're finally going on a big epic mission. Star Trek Beyond begins, oh, I'm so tired of this mission. No! (laughs) We finally want to see you do the fun stuff! Do the fun stuff! What are you doing? Things have gotten a little old around here. No, 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 just do regular. regular. So, so End of Darkness sucks, but Mm. Star Trek 2009 is pretty good, and Beyond is pretty good. Mm. Pretty good. Now let's look at Star Wars. Mm. Force Awakens. It's repetitive and cyclical. You know, like, here's the stories being told over and over again generationally. It's also quite good. It's it's really slickly put together. Uh-huh. I'm not, not going to complain about, like, the filmmaking or anything. Yeah, uh, and the argument that, like, we make the same mistakes over and over again mm. works. I mean, look at what we're doing now with fascism on the rise. Yeah, and... and uh, the counter! I, I wrote a, I've, I've mentioned this before. I wrote a whole essay for a website called Legion of Leia about how uh, The Force Awakens is essentially just the Tiny Toon Adventures of the Star Wars universe. Because, uh, you know, if you look at all of the characters, they all have, like, you know, their junior versions of senior analogs from the original movie. They're just younger versions, but they also live in the same universe as these characters. Yeah. Just like Buster Bunny can interact interact with Bugs Bunny. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, Bugs Bunny has been bifurcated. And same thing with Luke Skywalker. He's been bifurcated. Now he's, he's Rey and uh, uh, Finn. Yeah. that's Those two are now Luke Skywalker together. Um, Poe yes. po is Han Solo Jr. Uh, even, Basically. Even R2-D2 got a junior in the, the, the ball robot. Um, uh, BB-8. I, I always want to say B-88 for some reason. Um... So yeah, in that regard, that it's sort of this young, hip '90s version of Star Wars, even though it came out in 2015. Yeah, uh, <laughs> that's the vibe. That's that's the vibe I got, and I kind of enjoyed that, even though I don't think it's like a great movie or anything. Mm-hmm. I still enjoyed watching. it. I think it hits the big beats, like when mm. Han Solo dies. I think that scene really works. Then it was really surprising, and yeah, it, yeah I think the. It need, it, it, much like Star Trek 2009, mm-hmm. a tough job to do. Had to start a new era for the franchise. It introduced great characters, told the story pretty well. Mm-hmm. I like it. Yeah. The Last Jedi comes along. Mm. Holy <laughs> shit. The, the Last Jedi is actually really, really good. The Last Jedi is 
daring in a way <laughs> that blockbuster cinema is typically not. Mm-hmm. Whereas I feel like even Star Trek Into Darkness, where they're trying to you know darken up the Star Trek universe, which is really antithetical to the brand. That was seen as like, oh, we're going to be so daring. And then they actually played it really, really safe. Mm. Last Jedi takes some big fucking swings and denies elements of Star Wars that we took for granted for Mm. a really, really long time. Well, and and also, um, I feel it's a film that very specifically confronted fandom. Uh, A, within the narrative, you know, this whole idea, you know, okay, we have to really pay attention to this Jedi stuff. And it turns out all this Jedi stuff is kind of the thing that's wrecking a lot of the universe. What's holding us back, this commitment to the past. Exactly. And uh, And even, and even, and, and listen, I know that Abrams went out of his way to contradict a lot of The Last Jedi, but in, in uh, Rise of Skywalker, Mm -hmm. but, Ray is pushing the Jedi into a new direction. She's got healing powers and shit like that. Why weren't the Jedi using that before? Where was that? <laughs> like it's it, it, which just goes to show we needed to move forward. I, I don't remember this, but somebody mentioned that they also have like like the flash powers, like they can run super oh, yeah. fast. Well, they've been doing that since Phantom Menace. Yeah, I don't remember that from the Phantom Menace. There's like Where's a couple there, of scenes like, where they just go, they kind of like zip along. Yeah, that's like the first droid fight in Phantom Menace. They do that at least once. Oh, okay. You'd think they'd do that a lot. If they You'd can, think. I think it's, I think it's the a, flash power. I think they can only do it, like, for a second. I think that's the idea. It's like they, they just can, go, can, like, can across like, the room. Across. Okay, well, still. They just don't do it. Like, it's ridiculous. Zip around a lot more. Anyway. Um, uh, last Jedi, also stylistically, unlike any other Star Wars movie, it's clearly taking visual influences from different things, which yeah, I really appreciate. And, and what I liked about it is... I'm I'm kind of surprised that they the company decided just to roll forward and make another one. I guess they have to come in threes. Yeah, but they, uh, well, they committed. They said they were doing a trilogy. Well, they could just say no because mm. the story ended. Uh, it ended with the bad guys winning, which is not mm. all that satisfying. But it ended with, um, but you know, there's always going to be another rebellion out there, and mm. I think that was a good way to just sort of let it be. Perhaps, and I, I, and think, I think I think there's ways you could have done it. For me, I would have taken yeah. a longer break. I, like I would have said that like episode nine takes place like ten years later. And they and they release it like and several years after yeah, the fact. Whatever, I don't really care about yeah. that. I think that's fine. But like, I, I yeah. think I think it would have been stronger to just have there be a huge gap and have episode nine begin with kind of a clean slate rather than yeah. trying to have it follow directly. Right. Because let's Jedi, yeah, and it kind of ended. Mm. Much like the ending of The Force Awakens forced The Last Jedi to open one second later. Uh-huh. And a lot of people are just like, oh, why aren't the characters like so well-developed and have these like close relationships like they do in Empire? It's because J.J. Abrams opened, began the, ended the movie with, <laughs> and now it needs to take place five minutes mm. later, mm. and they haven't built those relationships. Right. Kind of shot... Last Jedi in the kneecap a little bit. Mm. So they did the best they could. Look, there are things about the movie that are sloppy and that I don't like. I don't like that Last Jedi basically ends with an advertisement for Star Wars products. Where, like, if you ride <laughs> this <laughs> ring, that means you're part of the Resistance. Uh, it's available right now at the Disney store. The like, kids are literally playing with Star Wars toys. I, I, but if you consider yeah. uh, consider that Star Wars wouldn't be what it is without the toys. I've actually I, talked to a lot of Star Wars fans about this. Mm-hmm. Because the, the toy branding yeah. became such an important part of the film... Fin- as a phenomenon, yeah. that if you remove that, Star Wars becomes a lesser thing. No, it's not. It's never been just about the movies. It's also been largely about the toys. So that they actually had Star Wars toys mm-hmm. in a Star Wars movie wasn't necessarily gross over marketing, although it was that. Uh, <laughs> it also, I think, was openly acknowledging that having these play that that all these characters are simply playthings. You know, I interviewed Ryan Johnson. Okay. 
uh, who, for who this wrote, movie, wrote and directed who wrote it, and directed yeah. it. And I interviewed him before the embargo broke. Oh, wow, okay. So, like, people hadn't really seen it, and the stuff that people were complaining about, like, oh, race, parents, mm. whatever. I don't think a lot of people who saw that movie, like, at the premiere at an early, like, press screening... I don't think we predicted that people were going to be pissed off about that. It seemed no. like a natural... It was a surprise, but it was an interesting natural extension of where the story was going. The thing I thought people were going to complain about, I thought we complained about two things. One, we kind of built up Captain Phasma, and she kind of doesn't do a lot. So I talked to him about that. All right. He just said there wasn't room in the story. The movie's like completely bloated as it is, and he's right about that, but I was disappointed. <laughs> that, that, that's, that's the complaint I was I have disappointed that, that there wasn't. Long. I was disappointed that there wasn't more Phasma, but what can you do? Mm. Uh, and the other thing I said was, I kind of take issue with the ending. I feel like the ending is kind of like this big commercial for products and what do you think tell me mm. about that and he made the exact same argument he said when i was a kid <clears throat> i was telling star wars stories at home with the toys mm. the toys were avatars of star wars they weren't just things that i bought yeah yeah so he t- so he was being very genuine about having this emotional connection to the toys i still think it's kind of overdone but i get mm. that yeah i get yeah. that anyway i think last jedi is a bold 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 blockbuster mm. and very few blockbusters get to be that bold and then we get to Rise of Skywalker, which just, backtracks everything yeah. interesting well, the franchise was doing. The, and a lot of people have compared. <clears throat> excuse me. Um, I've I've heard a lot of people analyze Star Wars. Um, sure. I've I've heard more analyses of Star Wars than I've watched Star Wars. Well, and we're about to start our own Star Wars podcast. For yeah, God's sake, it's, it's, it's a cottage industry so, in and of itself. Um, so this notion that uh, Star Wars started strong, uh, the Empire Strikes Back is the pinnacle of sci-fi, and mm. the Empire or the Return of the Jedi is. A lesser film. I think it ends it well, but as a as a movie, it's, it's not a, as great. And I, I remember being really bored. Like, there's so much. Like, how, how much of the movie is just like Han Solo trying to pick a lock? It feels like that's. <laughs> it feels like that's forty minutes of the movie the, is just sitting in front of a door. The, whole, uh, the, the big section at the forest moon of Endor mm. is not nearly as interesting as Lucas thought it was. I think the opening with Jabba's palace is really great because it's got a sense of place, even though the plan makes no sense. But the, it took us like yeah. twenty years to really zero in on that. The, the plan the plan makes no sense, and uh, it's also severed off from the rest of the movie. It is. Like the, well, the only, I'm okay with having like again, these movies are based off Flash Gordon serials. I'm so okay with like having it be episodic. Yeah, yeah. Like, I'm okay with having the opening be episodic. And then they go to the Forest Moon of Endor, mm. and listen, all the stuff on the Death Star with Luke and the Emperor and Darth Vader, mm. that shit is gold. That shit's wonderful. I love all that. All right. It's the stuff on Endor, or the Forest Moon of Endor, mm. where I'm like, eh, it's, it's fine. <laughs> those flying, those I, I don't know if I dedicate a whole cool, movie but, to yeah. it. Like, I feel like maybe it would have a little more variety just having it be in a forest, like maybe could we have done a little bit more for the last one? Yeah, but no, all right. but yeah. I, remember, I like all the monsters at the beginning, and then there's yeah, this huge, just boring chunk where they're just stuck. I'm in not the even mad at the Ewoks. I know a lot of people like, hated the, the Ewoks. Ewoks. The Ewoks are fine. It's yeah. just the the setting is boring. I remember there, there's been some interesting sort of critical analysis about the Ewoks and how like people rejected the Ewoks because it seemed like the Ewoks were trying not to cater to little boys. So oh uh, oh 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 now things are or, cute now we're doing Care Bears or, or slash... even even littler boys yeah yeah yeah, yeah. like now that now this, no, you're the... you're aiming lower than the age of nine and that's that's not yeah. acceptable yeah and then like I don't care what you're fucking talking about they're murder bears like they're playing bongos on severed stormtrooper heads at the end like come on mm. they're they're horrible creatures they were gonna eat people Aren't yeah they they're, roast they're, them over a fire they're not yeah. that cute <laughs> they're really fucked up actually <laughs> anyway I digress uh, Rise of Skywalker we just spent a whole lot of time talking about it on multiple podcasts but. Um, it's narratively choppy. Uh, it backtracks well, on a, it, it's it's when you look at uh, uh, improv, 
when you're creating a story, when you don't have a story mm. already written for you, you don't have all three chapters, and what happens is, I'm telling the first chapter, Ryan Johnson takes the ball and runs with it, and I just take the ball and run with it. You're supposed to go, yes, and. You're supposed mm. to go, everything Ryan Johnson said, and now I'm going to do more. And, like, a big chunk of that movie is everything Ryan Johnson said was important, I'm going to completely reverse course. Yeah. Rose, not a thing. Uh, the whole uh, uh, Ray isn't like doesn't have an important lineage. She literally has the most important lineage. That's mm-hmm. the only way we think she's interesting. This is crap. Yeah. yeah. This is this it's... is disingenuous, self-serving crap. Now, I, I think uh, ever since uh, the Phantom Menace, the first uh, movie George Lucas came back to after Return of the Jedi, um, not counting the, the the Ewok TV movies, which came after Return of the Jedi. Um, all of these things have been uh, – in fact, you could even say this for about uh, The Empire Strikes Back. They've all been, been a reaction to the popularity of the film that came before it. Yeah. Um, they expanded the importance of Darth Vader in The Empire Strikes Back. They expanded the importance of the Force in The Empire the Strikes Four, Back. Yeah. And they expanded upon the relationships between uh, Han Solo and Princess Leia in particular. Well, that's it's all an that, expansion. That's fine because that's sort of the way things might evolve. I'm yeah. saying they, they changed the premise of Darth Vader. Mm. They introduced this new idea that he is like the Emperor's right-hand man. Like he's the mo- one of the most important figures in all of the Empire, where he wasn't in the first movie. No, he was he, basically he was, the Black Knight. Yeah, he was he was a Black Knight, but he did charges well, for the Empire. And I got the impression right watching the first movie yeah. that he didn't need the Empire to go about his business. I'm going to stop you right there, yeah. because I think he was significant in that. Mm. Luke Skywalker is our protagonist for the story. Main uh-huh. protagonist, anyway. Uh, and he, we are very explicitly told that Darth Vader killed his father in the first one. Oh, there so you Darth go. Vader does have great significance to the story. You're right. I'm talking and about the fact that he isn't killed at the end does set up that he'll be back, and it's important. I, I am talking about just sort of how how important he was within the machinations of the universe sure. versus how important he became in the minds of the people who watched the movie. That's right. And he became this sort of end-all and be-all of villainy, so when they made The Empire Strikes Back, that's their approach to writing uh, Darth Vader. And all, and all of a sudden, they, they rewrite him, so yeah, he's the Emperor's right-hand man. He can take charge of anything he wants uh-huh. to. He has this mad vendetta. Oh, and by the way, it turns out he didn't just kill your father, he is your father, even though that doesn't make any sense well, in the context of what we know. And it's kind uh, of like um, in the Matrix sequels, how Agent Smith, played by Hugo Weaving, mm-hmm. he was the main villain. Even yeah. though he wasn't like in charge of mm-hmm. anything, he was the main villain, he was the point man for the evil computer programs that were running the Matrix. And he got killed or destroyed at the end of the Matrix, but he was so popular, they needed to bring him back, and so they <laughs> made him a computer virus. How did he become a computer virus? We literally don't know. It's weird, <laughs> right? Like, it doesn't it, make any sense. At, at the very least, he had to sort of fight his way back from this obscure place they had shoved him into. Yeah. They didn't just sort of say, oh, and by the way, it turns out he was the head of the Matrix the whole time. Oh, by the way, he, he was, was the Neo's master father. control yeah. program. Yeah. yeah, Like, they didn't re- no. redefine him in that sort of way. Much, much like they redefine like, Ray in a way that feels yeah, disingenuous and, and, and crap. Darth Vader became so important after that movie that there are now three movies about how Darth Vader grew up. I know. It's like, really, he's that important to the events of this universe? People call, people call it the Skywalker saga. Because yeah, it's about <sighs> Anakin Skywalker. Even though the last third is literally not about a Skywalker. <laughs> like, a Skywalker barely... Like, what? No. Okay, Maybe anyway... By the way, we we got to we got to come yeah. to a conclusion here because we've been, right. we've, got, we've gone on. Well, you can only a... pick one franchise yeah, to yeah, enjoy, yeah. and you only get these three films. We're not talking about mm. the originals at all. 
I've been a Trekkie for the longest time. I feel like uh, the J.J. Abrams Star Trek, while good films, don't really expand on the Star Trek myth in any kind of significant way. They're mm-hmm. simply entertaining sci-fi movies. Uh, I can dispense with them and keep Star Wars. So you actually would even though Even choice. though I'm not a Star Wars person, because I think that, that think- first Star Wars movie is totally entertaining. I think mm-hmm. the second one is yeah, kind of a daring blockbuster, even if the third one is just sort of chaff. I'm, I'm actually going the opposite direction. All right. Um, for me, as much as I really think The Force Awakens works, and as much as I think The Last Jedi is bold and daring, mm. Rise of Skywalker is just like, okay, here's your five-star appetizer. Mm. Here's your uh, absolutely delicious prime rib dinner. And for dessert, here's some here's poo. A, mar- a marshmallow. Like, no, not even a marshmallow. Here's some poo. And I'm like... I, <laughs> it's that's, not that's, quite that bad. I just, it's it not good, a, but... It, it leaves a bad taste in my mouth. Okay. It leaves a bad... It makes The Last Jedi retroactively less good, mm. and The Force Awakens retroactively less interesting. Right. Whereas, even though Into Darkness isn't good, mm. it doesn't mean that Star Trek 2009 suddenly sucks. All right, and even though Beyond isn't amazing, I'm just going for kind of law of averages here. Okay. On average, I like the Star Trek movies more than two genuinely great movies completely undermined by a really shitty one. <laughs> Fair. So I'm actually going to go the opposite, right. but I, I would struggle with this All because right. I really do like Force Awakens and Last Jedi a lot. We just had a conversation of Star Trek versus Star Let's Wars. Have Let's move on. Let's do it. All right. Um, this is a letter from Jacob. Hi, Jacob. Uh, the annual Does Kaiher Du Cinema Even Matter letter. Oh, no. Which is interesting because Kaiher Du Cinema, uh, if you hadn't heard the big news, uh, were bought by some... Uh, like a hedge, hedge fund like, or something? Yeah, some hedge fund or some, like, some of the wealthy investors bought them out. And Kaiher Du Cinema... Because know, was- knowing how this functions, and because they have more integrity than anyone, mm-hmm. the entire staff walked that day. Yeah. Like, immediately, first thing. And the thing is, it wasn't even just that they were purchased. They were purchased. They were, like, producers. Mm. They were, like, Hollywood and filmmaker types who produced Cachet du Cinema, which has, for about 60, 70 years, I don't remember the exact date in which they were formed, mm. uh, been the gold standard for film criticism throughout the entire planet. Yeah. But throughout the yeah. known universe, uh, Kakei Du Cinema was the single gold standard. And as soon as they were bought out by somebody who they thought would, would lead to them feeling like they can't have integrity, integrity yeah. they immediately quit. Holy shit. I mean, it, and it's – it hurts to know that Kaiher to Cinema just ended abruptly. I'm sure they're going to keep the, and, I'm sure they're going to restaff that thing because the name has value. Yeah, or the the staff is going to form their own competing magazine and that's where the name will move. No, uh, no, no not, the, not no. the name, that's where the, the spirit will move. Yeah, the spirit um, will move. I hope they do, but the name is probably much like the LA Weekly got bought out by shitty people yeah. and turned into a shitty local newspaper. Mm. That's probably what they're going to do with Kaiher Cinema. Yeah, they're probably yeah. just going to restaff it, use the name, try to make some money off of mm. it. It's, I it's, hope it's which hurts my soul. It, but it, it really, really hurts. Yeah, Kaiju Cinema did have the highest possible standards, almost to an impossible degree. Yeah, like to the point where even I or you uh, were considered kind of snobbish by a lot of our fellow critics. But we're not. But we're not. Yeah. But like, well, certainly not by Kaiju Cinema. When I read their reviews uh, of movies that I like, I'm like, okay, y'all guys are just being fucking assholes. <laughs> <laughs> like, come 
on. Are you kidding me? Jesus. All right. And then it's always something really unexpected. It's like, ah, oh, Titanic is, is cinema crap. This is my Kyrgyz cinema yeah. voice. But boat trip. Yeah. What an yeah, interesting like, perspective it offers. It's like, <laughs> the Lone Ranger, however, had some very interesting things to say about the myth of the American... Oh, shut, shut up. Shut up. <laughs> anyway, let's read the letter. Uh, I was perusing the best of 2019 lists from Kyrgyz cinema and found myself dumbfounded. Jean-Luc Godard, number one, sure. Yeah. Parasite, number two, sure. Yeah. Other non-American films that I should check out, sure. <laughs> Joker, number nine, fine. I, I radically disagree with that. Uh, uh, the Irishman, number ten, good. Number eight, The Mule by Clint Eastwood. Fucking what? What? <laughs> to the best of my knowledge, neither of you caught this movie when it came out. Neither, of you, neither of you have caught up with it since. I'm pretty sure that's true because you would never talk about any other movie for the rest of eternity. <laughs> <laughs> Let me give you a brief synopsis. Clint Eastwood, actor-director, teaming up once again with the screenwriter of Gran Torino, stars as a washed-up, absent father who becomes a drug mule for a Mexican cartel led by Andy Garcia, who runs hundreds of pounds of cocaine from Texas to Chicago. The story juggles his time on the road, his time making things right with his family, and Bradley Cooper and Michael Pena as ATF agents, agents tracking this guy down. Now let me tell you what the movie really is. Clint Eastwood portrays himself as the most badass 90-year-old who gets to do things like drive by himself and have no fewer than two three-ways with 20-somethings through the course of the movie. (laughs) The film is also an educational piece for the audience where they learn how to text, stop using the term Negro, and in a scene with dykes on bikes, not to assume someone's gender and use of correct pronouns. All of this is set opposite the Cooper subplot, which comes from a completely different movie. This movie is garbage Mm. in the best way possible. Mm. I showed it to some of my friends and we had a wonderful time dunking on it. All of this is to say there's no fucking way this is the eighth best movie of the year. Fuck you, Coyote Cinema. (laughs) Is that the end of the year? Not yet. Okay. Um, So our... Uh, are they even relevant at this point? Their inclusion of the mule lets me know that even though they're French, they're still old farts with the same shitty taste as my dad. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to my rant. Please see the mule. I wish it could have featured. It could have been featured on the two shot. I'll even send you a copy. You have to see this weird fucking movie. A quick shout out to the four senior citizens in my theater who had to watch me freaking out over the sheer number of nonagenarian menage a trois therein. I'm going to throw it out there. I did not read... Oh. First of all, I didn't see The Mule. You're right about that, and I don't think you have either. I haven't seen The Mule. And I didn't read the Cahiers de Cinema's uh, Mm. write-up of The Mule, where surely they would defend Mm. their choice. I believe that it is every every film critic's, not just prerogative, but responsibility Mm. to stand up for a movie if you're in the minority opinion on it. I think if if everyone else says this thing sucks and you think it's brilliant, Mm. you have to explain why, that's your job, but you need to stand up for it because who else will? Mm. Case in point, uh, I'm one of like the only film critics who just flat out said the new Hellboy movie is Mm. fine. (laughs) <laughs> like I don't think it's brilliant or nothing. I think it is highly entertaining and does exactly what it set mm. out to do. Yes, it's a mess. I don't care. It works. Mm. I'm willing to say that even though people give me endless shit for it. Sure. du Cinema has such a cachet that if they put something really fucking weird mm. on their top ten of the year list... My first reaction isn't they're old and out of touch. My first reaction is I really want to read their defense of this film. Because they may be onto something and they may even be thinking about it the exact same way uh, the person who wrote this email is, which is, can you believe this fucking shit? Yeah, this is actually extremely telling about the filmmaker's point of view in like a vertigo kind of way. Like the the entire uh, if the way you're describing the mule sounds like a lot of of films I've seen recently from like aging filmmakers where 
they don't take place necessarily in any kind of re- recognizable reality, mm-hmm. and they're meant to function as a wishful film and fantasy for the filmmaker themselves. Or to solidify <clears throat> their own worldview yeah, and say, exactly. our worldview still has a place and it's right here exactly. in the new Exactly, because yeah. that's what Gran Torino was about, wasn't sure. it? I mean, I that's a film that I did. Oh, that is a film I've seen, and that is, yeah, that is the, the ultimate dad film. Yeah. I saw it with my dad <laughs> at a second-run theater that had a stain on the screen. It was wonderful. Uh, yeah, it's about a, an old aging white guy in, in the city who has his own little you know plot of land, and he's been working. It looks like blue up collar without the balloons. Yeah, it's like this old lonely guy. His wife is dead. He's living in you know blue collar kind of guy, played by Clint Eastwood. He actually gets like some young punks wander onto his lawn. He actually gets to hold a gun on them and say, "Get off my lawn." Right. Uh, there's a self awareness to that movie. I think maybe I was reading too much into it. But then it ends with him, like, laying on the ground in a literal Christ crucifixion pose, and you're thinking, oh, f- fuck you. <laughs> yeah. But again, it's very telling about his point of view, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. You're learning a lot about Eastwood. But, but it's also about how this old guy learns to accept the Hmong community that he lives within. Uh, all, you know, all, all, of the, all of his white neighbors moved out, and a bunch of Hmong people moved in, and he doesn't know how to communicate with them, but he actually gets to be part of their, their community right. now. So it's actually about opening your mind and sort of using your crotchety old manness to defend a new community. So I actually think Gran Torino is both defending a stodgy point of view and also uh, learning to grow past that stodgy point of view. Mm-hmm. But I think it's that first thing that people take away from something like Gran Torino. Perhaps. And that's definitely what's focused on in Gran Torino. Um, but yeah, again... But I, uh, if, if yeah. we're to take the... Sorry, let me no, no, please, just finish please, this. Uh, if, we're, if we're to take the mule on, that, on those same terms, that this is just sort of within the mind of an aging white American filmmaker, being seen by a group of French critics... Yeah, you're right. They may be take, looking at that and seeing something like The Mule as an embarrassing confession, almost a self-aware embarrassing confession as to the kinds of things we think America should still be about, even though it's tired and old. It's, and you can use that to, to compare it to something like Easy Rider. Well, I think it, it, when you look at – Cahiers du Cinema was one of the uh, mm. publications that – Actually, defended elements of French cinema that of American cinema that mm. other people, even in America, were completely overlooking. Mm. Like they were the ones who popularized the idea of film noir as an ethos or a genre. Yeah. Like American cinema is doing all of these interesting things that they're really saying a lot about the American mindset pre, mm. mid, and post World War II, and you know, sort of the evolving or devolving American moral and ethical ethos. Mm. I'm not sure Americans knew they were doing that and having the outside perspective all of a sudden codified a lot of things that were going on. So, yeah, I think at the time, if they had put something like the Maltese Falcon on their best of the decade list or something, some Americans might have gone, what? Yeah, Isn't that just yeah. kind of this pop oiler kind of thing? Like, it's, it's good, but mm-hmm. what? Like, so I think that outside perspective might be really, really useful and it might really be interesting to read a perspective on a movie that we write off here, mm-hmm. but from another country's perspective, another culture's perspective, is fascinating and or telling. So, again, I haven't seen The Mule and I haven't read the write-up, but now I want to because <laughs> the Cahiers du Cinema stood up for yeah, it. Yeah. And I don't agree with everything that they do. They put Joker on there. I've seen The Joker. I think The Joker is not very good. I'd be curious to read their write-up, but I feel very, mm-hmm. very strongly about my own opinion. Mm-hmm. The Mule, where like no one told me it was that good or that interesting, all of a sudden I'm like, well, shit, maybe it is interesting. I'll have to check it out. 
Right, uh, you want to do another one? Yeah, we got time for a couple. Right, more. Uh, this one is from uh, B. Peterson. Hello, B. Hi, uh, dear Cinnamon and the fiendish Doctor Zoltan. Nice. <laughs> that's a that's a deep I, cut. I, I won't explain right now. Uh, <laughs> There's been a lot of talk about how female directors have been snubbed almost across the board for various awards this year. This is from uh, back in yeah, Jan- yeah. from early January. Uh, we don't know yet how it will all turn out as it's only January, but I think it's safe to say that Greta Gerwig, Celine Sciamma, Lulu Wang, and Olivia Wilde will not get the recognition they deserve. In response to this, I've heard some calling for a female director category at the Oscars, Golden Globes, etc. These calls have been met almost entirely with some degree of backlash, with people saying, how dare you? That is condescending. That is sexist. That would be a handout and so on. And that was my initial thought, too. But upon further reflection, I would think it would be entirely appropriate as long as there are separate categories for male and female actors. I mean, uh, inferencing that the distinction between male and female acting awards was instituted initially because prevailing throughout uh, uh, beliefs that men and women gave fundamentally different kinds of performances. However, now that view seems to be very out of date. When I look back over the year, I do not choose my favorite male and female performances of the year. year. I just choose my favorite performances, period. In addition to finding the distinction unnecessary, it keeps me from having to feel wrong by saying that Amandla Stenberg gave a performance worthy of Best Actress in The Hate You Give when they are non-binary. Amandla simply gave one of the best performances of 2018, and that should be enough. I actually didn't know that about Amandla Stenberg. That's interesting. Mm. Okay. Oh, I... I didn't know I that. Think, yeah, okay. I, well, I don't well, think I did either. Um, good to know. Uh, so why do, we keep, why do we keep the best actor and best actress distinction instead of just best lead performance? Mm-hmm. Today it would probably be argued that men and women are equal and each deserve equal attention. Now, I'd still have issues with that argument, keeping them separate in my mind. It is inherently unequal, but as long as that argument is being used for actors, shouldn't it be used for directors and perhaps other categories? Because the fact is, inequality in these awards exists. Yep. And one way to counteract that without entirely rewriting the system is to add a category specifically so that a woman can be recognized. It is a flawed answer, but it is an answer nonetheless. Uh, there has to be a response of some kind. Art, what are your thoughts? Thank you. See you in the next one. This is a great and actually really important conversation that we're having right now. And it, it's, it's died out since award season ended. But it's complicated. And both uh, both solutions to this problem are difficult. So mm-hmm. there's two possibilities that we're basically talking about. We're talking about uh, gendering more awards than we currently do. Yeah. Which currently we gender the acting awards, but none of the others. Mm. Uh, and Or we gender none of the awards, and we just do best lead performance, best supported performance, and mm. that's it. There are arguments for and against both sides that are very rational. So let's look at one at a time. Mm. If we just combine male and female performances to lead performance and supporting performance. What's to stop people from only nominating men? That's a question that people have asked. Like, if mm. we had never had male and female performances separated, someone would legitimately ask, and I honestly don't know the answer to this question, how many women would have won this award in the mm. Academy's history if yeah. we never did that? And the answer is probably not as many as we'd like. Yeah. yeah. When, we, when we dish out awards, we want as many people to get them as we can. <laughs> it's, it celebrates more movies. It engages mm. with more filmmakers. It makes people feel appreciated. So that's one of the big reasons why we separated those categories in the first place. There's, there is an argument to be made that men and women tell stories differently through the medium of acting. But one could also argue that men and women tell stories differently through the medium of direction. We talk a lot about, for example, the male gaze. This is something mm. that men tend to do a lot. Mm. They look at things from a masculine perspective. The opposite is also true. And if that's the case... 
then perhaps they're significantly different enough that expanding the number of categories and best director to best male filmmaker and best female filmmaker, allowing for the fact that there are non-binary filmmakers mm. or trans filmmakers and that might complicate the matter, um, it would do two things. One, it would give more people who aren't men an opportunity to win this award. Yep. Which is something that the Oscars would benefit from, just in general. There's, there's, it would yeah. raise awareness and the significance of films made by women, which even beyond Best Director don't get nominated for Best Picture enough either. Mm-hmm. And if all of a sudden this is a category we have to, to nominate for, you're going to see more of those movies. You're not going to overlook Little Women the way some people said they were. Mm. Because now you have to nominate women, female filmmakers, so we need to see more female films. And all of a sudden, you might more, start more seeing... More women are getting more work, aren't and they? The, yeah. And you might... and Yeah, exactly. People might actually be like eager to get into this category, and they'll hire more women. And because people are going to have to go out of their way to see more movies made by women, there might be more of them ending up in the Best Picture category. Yeah. So there's yeah. a lot of practical bonuses to come from this. But, again, at, at a baseline level... Should we make a distinction at all? And I would argue, no, probably not. But there are practical reasons the, why um, it might be a good idea. The argument that uh, we should only be looking at merit mm-hmm. and not worrying about the gender of the filmmaker uh-huh. doesn't hold any water no. in an institution that has bloody-mindedly nominated mostly men throughout its history. Uh, mostly men and yeah. mostly white men. Mostly white men throughout yeah, its history. Yeah, it's been... It's um, a problem. We need to make active steps if we want to change that. Yeah, and when we're talking about, like, lead and supporting performances, that also makes a little bit more sense because th- that's what you see. Yeah. That's what the audiences are familiar with. Uh, you know, they're not going to necessarily see the art director or the costume designers. Not on well, camera, anyway. Well, You'll well, see I'm their like, work. Like, but... Yeah, we, we see their work, but the actors are the things we've come to engage with. Yeah, and, we, we, uh, we associate with the actors we don't necessarily associate with the costume designer because they're not on camera we're just seeing their work and i think the director uh to borrow a concept introduced by Cahier du Cinema <laughs> is the author of the piece. Mm-hmm. And we, if apart from the actors, the director is the person we are relating to the most. Mm-hmm. They're the ones who are directing the picture at yeah, us. That's the idea, anyway. Um, unless you're making a Marvel film. Then Kevin Feige is the one kind of directing the film. Well, whatever. Us. You know, there's diff- <laughs> there are different levels of producerial control. Yeah, you, yeah. you can't... Look, movies are a collaborative medium, but the director is responsible mm-hmm. for the way the story is told. Yeah, yeah. They might make those decisions via committee or based on what they're oh, told lot, to by a, a studio. Of, yeah, but a lot of the directors, those things are handed to them. The, but the day-to-day then. decisions on the set, those are supposed to be the directors. Mm. That's the way the yeah. system so, is set up. So, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, so, uh, actors, it makes perfect sense. And for directors, frankly, I think it makes perfect sense to gender the award. Uh, un- mm. un- until we've reached a point where we really aren't thinking about the gender or genders of the people involved... Mm. Because we clearly still are, because we're only nominating men. Mm-hmm. Uh, 2019 was a particularly frustrating film uh, film year because so many of the greatest films of the year were made by women. Yeah, like, and there like were a lot the majority of majority like, in yeah, like like the and uh, you yeah, know this is of course me speaking as a critic, but you know if you just sort of lay down what the best films of the year were, you know, in a big pile, all 50, you know, fifty great films. Like, ten of those right near the top are all going to be made by women. My yeah. favorite film of the year was made by uh, Celine Chiama. Yeah. Uh, I, I also put, like, Claire Denis and Olivia Wilde. Those are great, you know, as their films on my list. Yeah. That, uh, mine uh, was uh, Greta Gerwig and Lulu mm-hmm. Wang and Lorraine Scafaria yeah. and Celine Chiama as well. Yeah. They, yeah. Th- these were all wonderful, just great films that have 
every business being in the conversation when it comes to sort of the Academy Awards bait pictures, mm-hmm. and a lot of them were being left out. And the only reason people could come up with why they were being left out was sexism. There's no particularly yeah. good reason to leave. I mean, granted, there's not enough room to nominate all the great movies of the year. Mm. I'll grant you, but when you look at the large enough timeline mm. where you realize how few women have ever been nominated for Best Director, how few films directed by women have ever been nominated for Best Picture, mm. you realize that there's no way that's an accident. Mm-hmm. There's no way this is a meritocracy like you like to think it is that that few women have ever done anything of merit. That's or, ridiculous. Or, it's or fundamentally absurd. It's fundamentally absurd. Like and the, the laws of averages are against it. And the, the system has been weighted so heavily against women. They've had to fight so hard over the course of film history just to get films made more mm-hmm. than their male counterparts. Mm-hmm. Then – you know, even if it is just a meritocracy, women haven't been given the same opportunities. Yeah. So, you know, they're not in a, a position of equality yet. So I am in favor of gendering the Best Director Award, the Academy Awards. But at least there are practical reasons why it's a good idea. Yeah. I, I, I'm honestly... I'm torn because in a perfect world it wouldn't be necessary. But mm. I think in the world in which we actually live, in which we actually need to... Mm. To go out of our way in order to make things more fair and make representation mm-hmm. more equal across the board. I can't think of a better way to do it. Mm-hmm. If someone does it, please. <laughs> I would love that. Please come up with a better way. But right now, that's the best way I got. And there is a precedent set because we do gender other awards that mm-hmm. are very explicitly these emotional storytelling awards that are dealing mm-hmm. with individual experiences. So if we gender the acting awards, it's not unreasonable to <clears throat> also gender the directing mm-hmm. awards, even though we probably shouldn't in a perfect world be gendering either. Yeah. And I think we're going to, and we'll eventually have to come down to a, a point of not gendering these awards because eventually there's going to be more non-binary pe- yep. filmmakers and there's going to be a lot more people uh, on different parts of the gender spectrum. So yep. just saying male and female won't really encompass all of the filmmakers after a while. It's going to be a thing. Like the first mm. major like non-binary performer who was nominated for an Academy Award, mm. it's gonna, we're really going to have to have this conversation and it's only a matter yeah. of time. Well, um, oh, um, I know there was a, a bit of controversy when the Crying Game came out. I remember the controversy being more over the fact that it was a spoiler in the film. That yeah. was the time. That was that was the big problem with mm-hmm. that people complained about at the time. Mm-hmm. Was that the reveal of a character's gender was a big plot point? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I that's that's all I got. I don't know. Jay Davidson. Jay Davidson. Jay Davidson. I actually don't yeah. know Jay Davidson's um, like gender identity. Gender identity. Yeah. I, I don't know that off the mm. top of my head. If that issue should have been erased at the time, I don't know. Mm. Um, all right. Um, is that it for today? Or uh, sure, I guess that we can we can cut it off right there. Okay, we'll cut it off right there. Yeah. This been an interesting conversation. Thank you everybody for writing in. We really appreciate it. Uh, if you want to write in, you want to write in about other serious, sweeping topics like we discussed today, or frivolous, fun stuff, or whatever you want, it's mm-hmm. your time. Use it however you'd like. You can email us letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. If you just want to interact with us online, you can go to Twitter. I'm at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. And together we are at Critic Acclaim, because Critically Acclaimed is too long for Twitter for reasons. Uh, you can also head on over to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. 
uh, over there uh, for our various subscribers. You can vote for future episodes of our shows. You can access exclusive episodes of our various Patreon-exclusive podcasts, including Only the Best, where we review every single film ever nominated for Best Picture. Mm -hmm. We review uh, every single Star Trek episode in production order on All Our Yesterdays. Uh, we also have the Cancel Too Soon monthly movie, which we've decided to make a theme year out of. <laughs> We're doing – that's supposed to be our show for TV movies. We're going to be focusing exclusively on made-for-TV content that is not available on Disney+. Plus. And that's like the uh, whole year. If we get a lot of angry letters telling us to knock it off, then we'll knock it off. And but, people yeah. don't like it, but I've, some people have said they really appreciate the deep dive because mm. there's people talk about Disney all the time, but they only talk about the stuff Disney wants us to talk about. Which is a really small portion of their now completely blastingly huge catalog. Exactly. So yeah, if people don't like it, let us know. But so far we've gotten a lot of positive feedback on it, so we're doubling down for a bit. Um, and of course, we got other content there as well. And we hope you all uh, check it out and enjoy. And we give a very special thank you to everybody who subscribes. Without you, we literally couldn't do what we do. If mm. you can't afford to sign up, we get it. We appreciate it. Times are tough. We're all over. Please leave us a review wherever you find us iTunes, wherever, or, or I guess Apple Podcasts is what it is now. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, tell a friend <laughs> to, to plug us on social media, whatever you want. That'd be great. Um, so, yeah. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Sincerely yours, Bibbs and Whitney. <laughs>